Joel chapter 2. If you're familiar at all with the the book of Joel and his ministry, uh, you know that the prophet Joel wrote during a time of great distress in Israel. A plague of locusts had swept through the land like an invading army. On top of that, maybe immediately after that, a severe drought. We know what that's like. But this severe drought after the locust swarm then dried up the land and decimated any remaining crops. And then following the drought, there was wildfires that came and they burned up trees and pastures. Joel even describes the livestock as as the the, the livestock groans and moans in, in thirst and suffering. At a moment like that, when they're in the midst of horrible suffering, could you imagine the people of Israel being receptive to a prophet who called for repentance? Who challenged the people in their spiritual hardness? That's exactly what Joel did in Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. I want to read just a couple of verses for you here. Joel says this, and and I, I have to say that I find... Uh, the, the imagery that Joel uses here, some of the most powerful and some of the most uh, um, beautiful. In, beautiful may not be the sense we would normally use for this, but just beautiful imagery of this principle of Scripture. Look at verse 12. Joel says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I love that expression in verse 13. Rend your heart, not your garments. It refers to the, the practice, uh, the, the cultural practice of Jews when they were mourning, when they were grieving, to tear their clothing, to tear the seams of their, of their clothing. And, and we, we read in, in Scripture about, about them doing that, about them uh, tearing their clothing, rending their clothing. And here God says to the people, it's not your garments that I want to see torn. Anyone can do that. Anyone can tear their garments as an outward expression of grief that is not truly heartfelt. But what God says is, I want you to rend your heart, not your garments. This is the kind of repentance that God calls the nation of Israel to in the the book of Joel. But Joel's prophecy was not restricted just to the people in ancient Israel. He described the events that surround the time of judgment known as the Day of the Lord. The natural disasters that Israel had faced pale in comparison to the horrifying judgments that Joel describes in chapters 2 and 3. And we don't have time to read all that this morning. I'd encourage you, it's not a long book. I'd encourage you to sit down and read the book of Joel. And to study it out. It's a fascinating book. But it's in this context of, of 
comparing their present day disaster to the horrible judgment that is to come. It's in that context that Joel predicts the coming of the Holy Spirit and the offer of salvation to anyone who believes. And you can bet for people who are suffering, for people who had lost everything, that message of hope was something that they grabbed hold of. Let's look there later on in the chapter, verse 28, Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maidservants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we can understand why Peter quoted the first part of Joel's prophecy in Acts chapter 2. You can turn to Acts 2 if you'd like this morning. In Acts chapter 2, we read this last week. Peter stood up with the 11 other apostles before a crowd of thousands who were in Jerusalem for the feast of, of uh, Pentecost. And Peter stood up and he quoted this prophet Joel, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote, Those verses that we just read, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. We can understand why Peter quoted the first part. We we looked at this last week. The, 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 The Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter and the other apostles spoke in tongues miraculously. They 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 preached messages. They they were proclaiming the wondrous works of God, and everyone who was there was hearing them speak in their own language. Because Peter and these other apostles began to speak in languages that they themselves did not know. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, did an incredible, miraculous work. And Peter says, this is exactly what the prophet Joel was talking about. And we, we look at the prophet Joel and we read what he, what he says. And he says there, those verses, verses 28 and 29, he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the prophesying and the miracles that would take place. But then we read the last part of Joel's prophecy, that those heavenly signs, the, 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 the sun being darkened, the moon turned into blood. The coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Joel describes it, and Peter quotes this. Why does he quote this entire prophecy? Well, the Lutheran scholar Richard Lenski explains why. He says this, Peter must quote Joel's prophecy in full because the second part of it states how long the Spirit poured out at Pentecost will continue His work in the world. And because the last line opens the door of salvation to everyone who in repentance and faith calls on the Lord. You see, that's why Peter quotes this entire prophecy. I believe in part because Peter believed that the end was near. That this prophecy had begun to be fulfilled and he believed that it would not be very long before the rest of the prophecy was fulfilled and Christ returned 
Now, consider this. It's already a radical departure from what Peter and the apostles believed just a few days earlier when Jesus was ascended. Remember when Jesus was ascended in Acts chapter 1? And they're staring up at the sky and the angel says to them, Why do you keep looking up at the sky? This same Jesus, who you have seen go into heaven, will come again in the same manner. Well, why were they staring up in the sky? Because they were expecting him to come again. They were standing there waiting for him to come right back. And he didn't come right back. So now we go forward a few days. And Peter sees the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And immediately he thinks, great, this is it. Christ is going to come back. And we looked last week at that response. And Peter said, hey, Christ is going to come back. I'm excited about it. He was, he was, he's thrilled. And he, he, he says, this is, the, this is the answer. This is what you're seeing take place. And then what happened? Christ didn't come back. And we looked at the book of Second Peter, and we saw that Peter, at the end of his life, many years later, Peter wrote in that letter a warning that Christ's coming would be delayed and that there would be many scoffers who would mock the idea of the return of Christ because he hasn't come back. What's keeping him so long? And Peter reminded us that Christ will come back. It's only his his long-suffering. It's His mercy that delays His return. It's His mercy that delays His return so that, as Peter says, all might come to repentance. I think if we see all of that, if we understand that Peter believed that the coming of Christ was near, he believed that because the Holy Spirit had come, that meant that, that the next thing to happen would be Christ's return. In other words, Peter was not looking for some other prophetic fulfillment. He said, this is the fulfillment we've been waiting for. Now Christ can return if we understand that. And we understand that if that was true for Peter and the apostles at the day of Pentecost, it is even more true for us today. Because now we're almost 2,000 years closer to that day. Then we can understand why it is that Peter, Peter preached what he preached to these people. That's what I'd like to look at this morning. Before we begin, let's just have a a brief word of prayer. Dear Lord, as we look into your word, as we study the scripture and we see what Acts chapter 2 reveals, the, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about our responsibility to repent and to put our faith and trust in you for salvation. Lord, I pray that as we consider these truths that you would uh, illuminate our minds to understand them. That your spirit would convict our hearts. And that we would respond in faith and in surrender to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, following Peter's explanation of these miraculous signs, he preaches this message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, 
being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And Peter immediately begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to look at Peter's message this morning. And I really want to really want to ask three questions. Three questions this morning I'd like to look at with regard to this prophecy of Joel. The fact that Peter quotes this prophecy here in this passage. What does it mean for Peter and the apostles there on the day of Pentecost? If Joel's prophecy is true, if the Holy Spirit has been poured out, if God's timetable is continuing, and we are now, as Peter is explaining, we are now that much closer because God has fulfilled His Word and He is moving toward the culmination of all things, then, then what does that mean for Peter? What did that mean for, for the apostles? Let, let's look here. In this passage, I think the first thing that we need to see that really the central thing that Peter and the apostles understood when the Holy Spirit came was that their mission as witnesses had begun in full. You see, it was it was days earlier that Jesus had told them in Acts chapter one and verse eight that they would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus had promised that that would be the case. And now that the Holy Spirit has come, Peter and the other disciples realize that their mission has now begun. That's why Peter preaches what he preaches. Look at what he says here, verses 22 and 23. Who is Jesus Christ? Peter says, not just a man. Jesus was sent by God. He says he was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. Jesus spent years walking around the nation of Israel doing what? Signs. We looked at those. We we studied the book of Mark and we went through and we saw the miracles that Jesus did. But these were not just uh, opportunities for him to show off, nor were they simply for the purpose of healing and helping people, though they did accomplish that. They were signs. They were intended to reveal who Jesus was. So he performed these signs. Why? Peter says that God was giving testimony through Jesus Christ of his divine nature. Because God empowered him to do these miracles, to prove to these hard-hearted people who Jesus Christ was. And it was those same Israelites, those same Pharisees who stood there after Jesus had done miracle after miracle and said, well, show us a sign and we'll believe you. No, Jesus had already done that. He demonstrated. That's what Peter says. God attested. But not only that, Peter tells us there in verse 23 that it was God's plan. It was God's plan for Jesus to come to earth. It was God's plan for Jesus to be turned over to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the Roman officials who would eventually crucify him. That's what he says. 
He says he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And so that even while these men actively chose to oppose Jesus Christ, and even when they made choices that were hostile to God, and trying and really working in opposition to God, God was working out his plan in and through those people. And as much as they could look back and say, yeah, we got him, Peter is saying, no, you didn't. God used you to accomplish his purpose because this was his plan. Jesus preached who Jesus is. He is the one sent by God. The one who is proven to be from God. And ultimately, it was according to the plan of God that he was crucified. These very same Jews, Peter said. He says, you have taken him. Verse, uh, in verse 23, you have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified him and put him to death. And as we saw before, there's no, there, there shouldn't be any tension here. These people made choices, but because God is sovereign, God's plan was worked out according to his will. And yet each one of these men is responsible for the choice that he made because it was their lawless hands that crucified Christ. That's what Peter says. You are guilty, he's saying to these people. You are guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came and proved over and over again that he was the Son of God, and you didn't believe it. These are harsh words. This is strong words that Peter is using. He doesn't, you know, you notice there's no lengthy introduction here for Peter. (laughs) He doesn't tell a joke or read a poem or anything like that. He goes right into it. He tells him, listen, you guys are are the lawless ones who have murdered the Son of God. And you'd think right there they would just turn him off. But Peter is not finished. Because verse 24, he says, God raised him up. He said it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. <laughs> I love that. And then he even goes back, and this is, you know, Peter has the, the gall to go back to the Old Testament scriptures and prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied. And prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan. And he goes back and he quotes David in the Psalms, verse 25. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter explained that these verses taken from Psalm 16... Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He explained that these were referring to to the Messiah. How do we know these were referring to the Messiah? Well, Peter tells us that. Verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of our patriarch David. For he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It can't be David. That can't be who it's referring to. Why? Because David is still in his tomb. He's dead and buried. That's a pretty strong argument. 
pretty strong case that this can't be referring to David because, well, David, his body has decayed. It has been corrupted. It has completely returned to dust as God promised to Adam would happen to all of his race. No, it can't refer to David. Instead, he says it refers to the Messiah. Verse 30, he says that David was a prophet. David was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn with him an oath that the fruit of his body, one of David's descendants, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. David, he says, David saw this. David predicted this because God had shown him that there would be a descendant of his who would sit on his throne forever, who would defy death, who would overcome death. We can go back. We don't have time to trace all that. Peter just makes it very clear. These Jews, he says, listen, if you just read the Old Testament, you should know this. This should be obvious to you. If you just read the Psalms, David knew it. He understood it. He prophesied it. It's true. Jesus Christ, he performed the greatest sign possible. He overcame death. He rose again. Not only that, Peter says, hey, verse verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Peter says, hey, all of us standing here. We're all witnesses. We are all eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ, even though you crucified him, is now alive. Wow. I guess Jesus was right back in Acts 1.8. They would be witnesses. Peter says, we're all eyewitnesses. That Jesus rose from the dead. He goes on. He says there in the next verse, verse 33, that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. How do we know that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God? Well, because, according to Peter there in verse 33, when he was exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he poured out the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. So Peter says to these men, you see and hear the proof that Jesus Christ, not only did he rise again, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Because when he got to the right hand of the Father, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit and he poured out the Holy Spirit on us. So now we come full circle. Jesus Christ has returned once again to the Father. And he has demonstrated the fact that he is in heaven today by pouring out his Spirit. And if you need any more proof, he goes back, verse 34, back to David, and says again, this is, this is promised in the Old Testament. Verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but David says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
He said, well, David didn't ascend to heaven. David is still here in the grave on earth. We've established that fact. So if David didn't ascend into heaven, how could David say that God said to him, sit here at my right hand? David's not sitting at God's right hand. But the son of David, Jesus Christ, is sitting at the right hand of God. And then Peter says, verse 36, Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The fact that these men have observed the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied is proof that Jesus Christ is ascended to heaven Truly the reigning Messiah, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, risen from the dead. It's as if Peter looks at them and says, what more proof do you need? You see the Holy Spirit being poured out, and you see and observe the miracles that are being done. That is the proof. Now, verse 37. Because the first question was, what did it mean for Peter and the apostles at Pentecost? It meant that they were now witnesses. Their mission as witnesses had begun. And so Peter preached this message, being a witness to not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to his ascension as well. Proving without any doubt from the Old Testament scriptures and with the evidence that they can see and hear with their own eyes and ears that Jesus Christ is the, the Messiah. That was the witness. But what does this mean for the audience? What did this mean for the audience at Pentecost? They had seen the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. They'd seen the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit had come, just as Joel had predicted, then the sign, the one thing that Christ had promised would happen. Remember this. Back in Mark 13, Christ didn't promise a whole litany of things to watch out for. Okay, when you see this, then you know it's going to be so long, and then you'll see this. And then he didn't give them a timeline. Here's when God's going. To, here's when I'm going to come back, and here's the things to look for, and here's how you here's how you prepare for it. But in but in Acts one, Jesus did say, "I'm going to pour out the Spirit on you." He promised that. And for him to return without doing that would have would have violated his word. And so for him to now pour the Spirit out on them was proof. That the end was coming. Proof that now you better be watching, you better be ready, you better be prepared. Because the return of Christ is coming closer. The Spirit has been poured out. Christ's promise was fulfilled, which means now all we have is the culmination. When Christ does ultimately come and set things right. His return. Notice, nowhere in this passage, by the way, I think I mentioned this before, but nowhere in this passage do we see the rapture. That's not an argument against the rapture. It's just 
the fact is, I, I don't think that they knew anything about it at this point. You have to read further into the New Testament to see that that particular doctrine uh, explained. But what does this mean for these people? What does this mean if, if Joel's prophecy is coming true right in front of them? Then what does this mean for those hearers of Peter and the apostles that day? Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I don't want to get into great detail on this, but I just want to comment, one, one quick comment on this verse 38, when Jesus or when Peter talks about repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That word for there, uh, that word for there, uh, I, I believe implies or suggests uh, because of the remission of sins. Not, not in order to receive the remission, but because you have been, re- uh, you've, you've had your sins forgiven. In other words, he's not arguing that their baptism will save them. He's arguing they should be baptized because they have been forgiven of their sins. And we'll get into that more later because we'll talk about baptism more later on in the book of Acts. I just don't want to, I don't want to get into all that today, but I want to mention that to you. Okay. This verse does not support the idea that baptism is required for salvation, okay. even though it oftentimes is used for that. That's a misunderstanding of it. If you look at it more closely, we'll see that. But what is, what is Peter saying to them? What, what is... What is their response supposed to be? If Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled, if the Holy Spirit is being poured out, that means that the end is coming. That means that, 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 that every day, every moment that goes by, we're that much closer to the return of Christ. Then what does that mean? What should we do? That's what they asked Peter. What should we do? And Peter says, repent. Do what Joel said back in Joel chapter 2. Rend your hearts. Repent. Turn to the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. That's important. They had to recognize that what Peter had said was true. That Jesus truly was the Christ, the Messiah. Repent. For the promise is to you and to your children. They need to respond to the gospel. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is urging them here. Because we're told there in verse 40 that with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. It was time to respond to the Gospel so that each of them could experience the coming of the Holy Spirit as the apostles had. By the way, this is one of those miracles that continues to this day. Because when a lost sinner repents, and by faith trusts Jesus Christ for salvation, guess what? The Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. So each one of us has the opportunity. Peter says here, hey, when you repent, verse, uh, the end of verse 38, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise for you and I. 
That as we have repented of our sins and we've trusted Christ for salvation, that at that moment we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this miracle of the day of Pentecost, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is still going on today when a lost sinner confesses his sin and repents, turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. It's time to respond to the gospel. That's what Peter says. So Peter and the disciples, what's your response to this prophecy being fulfilled? Get out and be witnesses. Get Get about that business. For those who were listening to Peter that day, it's time to respond to the gospel. You've seen Jesus Christ. You've seen what he did. Now it's time for you to accept the truth by faith. But what does it mean for us today? So what if Joel chapter 2 began to be Fulfilled here at the day of Pentecost. What does that mean? Well, I think that we should take heed to Peter's exhortation. I want to turn over with you to Second Peter chapter two, three, because remember Peter preached this message at Pentecost at the beginning of his ministry. Second Peter chapter three, Peter wrote very near the end of his life. And I think Peter includes in here some wisdom for us today. How we ought to respond. If it was true at the day of Pentecost, and this is true at the end of Peter's life, what is true today? Let's see what he says. Verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 3, But of the day, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. What's, what's all these things? Well, the earth, the heavens, everything that is around us, everything that so often captures our attention. He says it's going to be dissolved. It's going to be destroyed. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, the first thing that I think we need to pay attention to, the first thing I need, think we need to respond to is what he says there in verse 14, even though Christ has delayed His coming, we ought to work diligently toward peace through a holy life. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. That means Christ is coming back. That's another guarantee, another, another step, another... Uh, part in that plan of God was fulfilled, continues to be fulfilled. What does that mean? Christ is coming back. He's delayed that coming now for 2,000 years. How much longer will He delay it? I have no idea. Maybe no longer. But we don't know. And because we don't know, we ought to work diligently toward peace 
through a holy life. That's what Peter says. To be found, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Simon Kistemacher says, when the Christian lives in the light of God's word and has fellowship with the Father and the Son, he is at peace with the Creator and Redeemer. He confesses sin. He receives remission and is purified from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of life we ought to live. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is a life of constant repentance. That's what it ought to be. Constant repentance of our sin, of our failure, of our weakness. And constant dependence on Him so that we can be found in peace, without spot, blameless, when He returns. The second thing we find there in verse 15. Consider, he says, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What is Peter saying? Since Christ has delayed His coming, there is opportunity for many to be saved. So guess what? We ought to be diligent as witnesses. Christ is coming. The fact that He hasn't come back yet ought to drive us to take every opportunity. Because the longer He delays His coming, the more opportunities we have. But we don't know how many opportunities exist. We don't know how many days we have. We ought to be diligent as witnesses. Neither Peter nor the apostles had any way of knowing how long Christ would delay His coming. None of them knew how long they would be alive to serve as Christ's witnesses. James, the brother of John, only served for 17 years before he was beheaded as a martyr. His brother, though, well, his brother was still preaching almost 50 years after that. Who knows? Certainly James and John didn't know how long they would have. If you read in the epistles of John, you find that the apostle John believed that, hey, we were in the last days, he said. Guess what? We still are. We don't know how long we have. None of the disciples did. None of the apostles did. No one knows how long we have to live. And as Peter reminds us here, Christ may return at any time. The first thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we know Jesus Christ personally as our Savior. The author of the book of Hebrews says the gospel must be mixed with faith in order for it to be of any profit. You've heard the gospel this morning. The question is, will you believe it? Will you hear it with faith? That's the only way it will do you any good. In that same passage in Hebrews, we are told that God has designated a certain day for you to respond. And you know what the author of Hebrews calls that day? Today. He says there's been a day designated for you to respond in faith. It's today. We don't have a guarantee. Peter urged the men, repent today. Next week we'll look at what happened? Because the result was thousands of those men repented and came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we must do if we know Jesus Christ is we must embrace our calling as witnesses. We must be sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and tell others what Christ has done. 
It's kind of like the song that we sing sometimes. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. When you get to the chorus, it says, You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. We have been called, just like Peter and the apostles, to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're also witnesses to the ascension of Jesus Christ if He's poured out His Spirit into our heart. Let me share this story with you as we conclude this morning. I want to just encourage you to consider this. Roger Sims was hitchhiking his way home on a date that he would never forget, May 7th. His heavy suitcase made Roger tired. He was anxious to take off his army uniform once and for all. Flashing his thumb to the oncoming car, he lost hope when he saw it was a black, sleek, new Cadillac. To his surprise, the car stopped. The passenger door opened. He ran toward the car, tossed his suitcase in the back, and thanked the handsome, well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps? I sure am, Roger responded. Well, you're in luck if you're going to Chicago. Well, not quite that far, he said. Do you live in Chicago? The man said, I have business there. My name is Hanover. After talking about many things, Roger, a Christian, felt a compulsion to witness to this 50-ish, apparently successful businessman about Christ. But he kept putting it off until he realized he was just 30 minutes from his home. It was now or never. So Roger cleared his throat. Mr. Hanover, I'd like to talk to you about something very important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation, ultimately asking Mr. Hanover if he would like to receive Christ as his Savior. To Roger's astonishment, the Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. Roger thought he was going to be ejected from the car, but the businessman bowed his head and received Christ. Then he thanked Roger. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me, he said. Five years went by. Roger married, had a two-year-old boy and a business of his own. Packing his suitcase for a business trip to Chicago, he found a small white business card that Hanover had given him years, five years before. In Chicago, he, he looked up Hanover Enterprises. A receptionist told him that it was impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover if he liked. A little confused as to what was going on, he, ush- he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You knew my husband. Roger told her how her her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? He said it was May 7th, five years ago, the day I was discharged from the Army. Anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention giving his witness? Since he had come so far, he might as well take the plunge. Mrs. Hanover, I explained the gospel. He, He pulled over to the side of the road and he wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day. Explosive sobs shook her body. Getting a grip of herself, she sobbed. I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I believed God would save him. And, said Roger, where is your husband, Mrs. Hanover? He's dead. She wept, struggling with words. He was in a car crash after he left you out of the car. He never got home. You see, I thought God had not kept his promise. Sobbing uncontrollably, she added, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought he had not kept his word. Can I ask you just this last question this morning? Will you be a witness for Christ today?
Let's pray. Lord, I have to confess that so many times